Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, everyone. And welcome to episode 233 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. How's it going? I'm getting over a cold, so I might sound a little congested. Yeah. I, you're not alone in the office, which is weird because normally think of colds when it's cold. No, I think everyone's got allergy stuff and summer colds and just yeah, all sorts of, yeah. We're coming off of a record high <sighs> this weekend. We're recording this on Monday because, nope, it's Tuesday. We're recording this on Tuesday, Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend because I will be in New York City the rest of the week. So by the time you guys hear this, I'll be back, but... Um, yeah, the weekend here, it was it was sweltering. I'm not complaining because it was, the winter was so brutal and cold, but it was hilarious to look out and be like, it's the end of May and it's like 95 degrees. And, you know, well, you won't have to deal with this because you're moving into a new place, but a lot of the homes in the city where I currently live and you are moving to do not have air conditioning, mm-hmm. including our house. <laughs> yeah. And those, we have a window unit. But then we have to rely on ceiling fans, and when it gets really hot and hu- it's mostly the humidity. Mm-hmm. The humidity was, it was ungodly. It was like thick. It was outside. like swampy. <laughs> it was swampy weather this weekend, and and those little ceiling fans just yeah can only do so much. Where I'm currently <laughs> where I'm currently residing, my sister in law's house. Uh, my wife and I, the room we're in, does not have a ceiling fan, and the, it doesn't the air doesn't get up there too well. So I've been sleeping downstairs. In the basement where there's wonderful air, and she's been upstairs with the one of the dogs. Um, but yeah, so there's your weather update, guys. You're welcome. It's hot uh, in Cleveland. It's hot in Cleveland. Hot in Cleveland. Um, that's okay though. It's better than freezing cold it in is. Cleveland. I will yes, not complain. It is. I won't complain yet. Come like August, I'll be yelling into the microphone like, "All right, fall, let's get here." Uh, okay, so today's episode is an interview that I did with Matthew Pearl back at. PLA in Philadelphia. Uh, Matthew is pretty well known for his best-selling books, The Dante Club, uh, which is wonderful. And he wrote a, a second kind of a follow-up to that called The Dante Chamber, which is what we discuss a lot. But we actually we dive into a bunch of his books because he does this really cool thing where it's he takes historical fiction, but his historical fiction is always about uh, literary people, like people who actually existed in the literary world, so authors and. Uh, different people in the book world that you may know a little bit about or you may not know anything about. And it just, he, it's really fun. The, the books are really fun. The Dante Club was incredible. The Dante Chamber was also wonderful. It was a great conversation. He was definitely one of those people who was very calm talking about his books and he's done it before and he's given lots of speeches and things. So he was, <clears throat> it was good. It just kind of turned into a conversation as opposed to an interview. Um, so that's Matthew Pearl. Uh, he'll talk all about his books, and we can get into that in a minute when you hear him start talking. But um, if people want to find us and have conversations with us, where are all the places they can do that? We have a lot, so let's see if I can get through them all. Um, <laughs> no, it's a good problem to have. We do now. Yeah, you're right. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. 
you can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We also have a Viber community where you can come and join us and some of our colleagues and other listeners to talk about books. There's a link can be found on that um, on our website. Mm-hmm. And you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Nice job. Got through all of that. That was impressive. Um, if you're looking for any of those things, just go to the website. That's where you'll find all those links as well. It's just very easy to find them there. But yeah, definitely, if you haven't joined our Viber community yet, I highly recommend it. Um, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people are confused it's a different app, but it, it takes two seconds to download the app, and then it's really cool just to see. I've gotten some kind of some book recommendations from other people, and it's not only just book recommendations. It's fun hearing people discuss back and forth. Like there were some people this morning talking about um, using audiobooks to listen to books for for their high school classes and mm-hmm. things like that. So it's really cool. Uh, so join in. It's a lot of fun. It's cool having the back and forth. And It's pl- not just overdrive people. It's not just overdrive people, yeah. I mean, there's a couple. There's, there are, there's but. Other, there's overdrive people in there because, as we've said a million times, we are a big bookish company, so it makes sense that they would want to talk to. Uh, anything else you think people should know about? No, I don't think so. Okay, we're going to wrap this up because I have a lot of things I have to get done before I go to New York City. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation I had with Matthew Pearl on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Adam again, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Matthew Pearl, who is an award-winning and best-selling author of The Dante Club, The Last Buccaneer, and The Poe Shadow. He has been called, and this is a really good little slogan people have given you, the king of popular literary historical thrillers, and his latest book, The Dante Chamber, comes out this summer. Matthew, thank you for taking some time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. So, can you maybe get us started by giving some people a description of your latest book, The Dante Chamber? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The Dante Chamber takes place in 1870 in London and the jumping off point is that there's a series of mysterious deaths Mm -hmm. around the city uh, that seem to be connected to Dante now. Of course Dante is the the, uh, 13th century Italian poet Mm -hmm. who wrote the famous Divine Comedy which is divided up into three parts, Inferno or Hell, uh, Purgatory and Paradise and that's about Dante's journey through the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Well these deaths in London all seem to be mimicking the punishments in purgatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our protagonist is Christina Rossetti, who of course was a brilliant and famous poet at the time. Right. And she gets involved because her brother, the eccentric artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who yes, is named after Dante <laughs> um, by their Italian father who is obsessed with Dante, uh-huh. he disappears uh, around the same time as, as this violence erupts. So Christina Rossetti has to gather some friends who include Robert Browning and Alfred Tennyson mm-hmm. and Oliver Wendell homes uh, to try to figure out what's going on. I, I to, first off, I have to tell you, when your publisher, Penny Random House, like, pitched me, like, hey, do you want to talk to Matthew about this book? First off, absolutely love Dante Globe. It's such a wonderful book, and I have a, actually a co-worker who comes on our podcast sometimes. Her name is Christina, ironically, and she and I, like, kick back and forth, basically, like, a retelling of Dante that we want to write all the time. So when this came out, I was like, <laughs> Christina, guess who I get to talk to? And we were both very excited. So, what made you want to kind of continue the story from Dante Club to the Dante Chamber a yeah. couple years later? Well, the Dante Club was my first novel, mm-hmm. and um, 
in that sense, it is a really important part of my creative life mm -hmm. and just my life overall. It, it set my course as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it kind of invented my course as a writer. <laughs> I, I, I hadn't even thought of being a writer until uh -huh. I started playing around with this idea for that novel, for mm -hmm. the Dante Club. Uh, so it, it has a special place for me. It always will. Yeah. Um, I hope it has a special place for, for some of the readers who have discovered it over the years. And I've been very grateful that um, readers uh, at, in book clubs have, have loved it. And um, I've had a lot of support from booksellers and libraries. So it's a story that I, that I always wanted to return to. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to make sure the Dante Chamber stands on its own two feet, mm -hmm. so I, I wouldn't say that it's required that anyone has to know the Dante Club or read the Dante Club mm -hmm. first, but for those who have, I think it's a fun way to continue a story. I, I love sequels. I yeah. love stories that, that keep going, and what I liked about this is, although I, I recruit some of the characters from the Dante Club to continue in the story, uh, especially Alva Wendell Holmes, um, the sequel part of it really goes through Dante, yeah. moving from Inferno or, or his vision of hell to his vision of purgatory, which in, which in many ways is even more interesting than mm -hmm. what he did with hell. I, I mean, I hate to ask, we're talking about this book, but I mean, it, I, elephant in the room, is there going to be a third one? Because I mean, <laughs> there, there is paradise on, you know, at the end of, of Dante's. Yeah. So are, you, are you kind of planning at some point down I, the line? I'm or? up for it. I've, I've written up some notes for myself. Mm -hmm. So before I forget, because I always forget <laughs> <laughs> when I have ideas, I have to write them down. Mm -hmm. um, for a third one that, as uh, you're exactly right, would, would kind of use paradise. Mm -hmm. um, as the map for yeah. the story and um, you know that's a trickier one because it's one thing to make a story or a thriller out of the punishments of hell or the purgations right. of purgatory what do you do with paradise I, I have ideas and I, I can't spill them yet but yeah <laughs> I, 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 won't, I won't make you reveal your secrets yeah. this but, but I hope I hope um, if this clicks with readers and, and it, it's a, a fun book to publish that um, that I might be able to return to that story again. Um, so what, like from my own research process, what, I mean, obviously you know a ton about Dante ahead of time, but did anything feel different for this book when compared to the Dante Club? Obviously having experience, having written several novels and publishing them, but did anything feel different to you as from like a, a craft and writing standpoint? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there's a couple things. Well, first of all, my, my whole life is different, and that was sure. something that I don't... I'm not someone who stops and reflects mm -hmm. or, or sort of expresses or tries to explore my emotions a lot. <laughs> it, it's probably one of the reasons I write historical fiction, I think, <laughs> is that I can at least pretend I'm not writing anything to do with me, uh -huh. which is not true. Whenever you write, you're, you're also <laughs> writing about yourself, yourself yeah. right? But I, I'm, not, I, I'm someone who would have trouble writing about, for instance something that happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd have a lot of trouble with that, even though I've written six novels and uh, I've written nonfiction articles. If I had to sit down and write something important that happened to my mm -hmm. life um, in a strange way, that, that would be really tough for me. Yeah. Um, so this actually sort of forced me to reflect because mm -hmm. it, it brought me back to the beginning of my career. And so there were, there were those kinds of differences, thinking about the way my life has changed, in part the way my life has changed because of the Dante mm -hmm. Club, which, as I say, kind of set me on my course. In terms of craft, you know, you always hope that your next book or the book you're about to write this time, I'm not going to have any problems writing it. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to just flow. It's mm -hmm. just going to happen. And, and as far as I can tell from my own experiences and from, from other writers I know, that, that will never and can never happen. <laughs> yeah, there's never going to be that, like, that where you see in movies that, like, spark. Oh, you're like, exactly. the words right. are falling out of me. I wrote 82,000 words last exactly. night. Exactly, so, yeah. and, and that's, that's funny you say that because that's 
you know, before I started writing, I, first of all, I never met a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of a writer was, was very strange and alien to me. And I think my ideas of writing came from some of the movies I would see, <laughs> right? Where it would show someone writing, just as you described, uh-huh. almost in real time. It just happens. The yeah. pages are, are coming out of the, the typewriter or the <laughs> computer. Um, but, you know, that said, I think I have developed, uh, even if I'm not that aware of it, I've developed some... Uh, more efficient skills mm-hmm. in researching and in the way that I plan and process what I'm going to write before mm-hmm. I write it. It doesn't mean that, that everything comes out the way it will end up in your final product. It never yeah. does. But I think I, I've gotten closer over the years to uh, to targeting the vision that's in my mind mm-hmm. and finding the most efficient ways to, to try to get that. Yeah, I, I think that honestly is, I think that's what makes the difference between the an author who writes full time as opposed to someone who's just kind of like noodling on a laptop in the evenings. It's like, it is that, that preparate, it's, you know, the preparation before you write an actual story. And then also the editing and going back and the revisions and things like that and not feeling so like my work is high and mighty and it can't be changed. Yeah, like, I think exactly. the whole process. Yeah. I mean, one day I would love to have, wake, wake up and have that 80,000 words in a night thing. Right. I just don't think it's ever going to happen. <laughs> no, I think you're right. And, and I remember with my, with the Dante Club, um, there's one scene with Ralph Waldo Emerson in it. Uh, the, the, the main characters are all um, writers or poets or publishers, and it's Henry Rogers Longfellow and Alvaro Wendell Holmes, who continues with us in the Dante Chamber, um, James Russell Lowell. But originally, I had Ralph Waldo Emerson as a character in the whole thing. And mm-hmm. as I say, he's just in one scene now. And that took so much work to write him into it, even though he really didn't belong in the story, yeah. he didn't fit in the story, and then later to carve him out of it. So as an example, as a a counterexample with the Dante Chamber, I thought Charles Dickens was going to be one of the characters Uh in it um, since we've kind of moved to the London scene of writers and the Mm -hmm. London scene of writers specifically who were interested in Dante. Um, And I started writing one scene with him and immediately was able to say, oh, he doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one example where where I hope or think that I'm a little better prepared to recognize what might not be working yeah. or what has to be changed. You can sort of see when you're shoehorning things in a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. So okay, when you're, first off, I, all of your books, I love the Thank idea you. of using actual literary figures. There's such a, especially like in the you know, literary world of readers, like it's almost like these little Easter eggs. You just like, your books to start with, it's like, oh, the Poe shadow. Oh, I, you immediately have this like thing that's going on in your brain. But when you're using these characters, who actually existed, obviously. Right. How do you decide where to draw the line between, like, okay, these are actual things that they mm-hmm. did, and here's where I'm going to take the reins and sort right. of create my own story? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's a question I've asked myself mm-hmm. uh, a number of times over the years yeah. and that I've talked to other writers about, talked to writing students about. Um, and there's not an answer, so every writer can have different answers to this, different feelings about this, I do feel a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, one form that I try to meet that responsibility with is by always having a historical note at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put it at the beginning because I don't want to ruin what's going to happen. But, yeah, exactly. Um, at the end of the book, I'll, I'll lay out, obviously not page by page, but kind of an, an overview of what came from history, what came from fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and readers really seem to enjoy that. I, yeah. I always get follow-up questions or um, comments about that historical note, even though it's it's fairly short. So I think that's one way to, to kind of anchor yourself mm-hmm. with the reader. Um, I also tend to think of it as a distinction between accuracy and authenticity. Mm-hmm. So if you're writing a novel of any kind, uh, not everything is going to be accurate. Yeah. Um, 
or it would be nonfiction, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the way I think of it is that even when things aren't accurate, so if Christina Rossetti is um, and Alfred Tennyson are, are going down this road of trying to figure out why this violence is happening, mm -hmm. obviously there's going to be points at which they're doing things that they never did in their life because the violence itself, in this case of this, this thriller, this story, didn't, didn't happen, occur. right? But can it feel authentic? And that's my goal. Yeah. Even if it's not accurate, can it be and feel authentic? And, and that comes from research. It comes from a lot of time spent at libraries. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my only conditions when, when, um, when my wife and I started to decide where to live mm -hmm. uh, or whether to move, it was that I have to be near great libraries, yeah. right? Because I, I can't write these books without that. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's no personal library in the world that can have everything you need for a research-based novel like yeah. like this one like the Dante chamber so that's that's kind of what I aspire to and I always love finding little windows into um, into something that really happened that that kind of gestures at your fiction in other words yeah often what happens is you're, you're thinking of this fictional story and sometimes you you make something up and then you find something very similar to it uh -huh. and, and I had my third novel was about Charles Dickens uh -huh. um, called The Last Dickens, and, and, and one of the things I came up with is that as he's on tour of the United States, he's doing um, a reading tour, not quite what we would call a book tour, that didn't exist, but, <laughs> right. but um, rather than going around signing books, he, he would go around to lecture halls and, mm -hmm. and read, uh, give dramatic readings of his books. In any case, I thought of the idea of having a stalker who's following him, yeah. a celebrity stalker, and then as I was doing research, I discovered he really did have a stalker <laughs> um, that no one had noticed before, which is the reason that I hadn't found it um, in the first first place and mm -hmm. and that's the kind of thing that that gets really exciting yeah i love it as it's so funny you'd say that we spoke with an author who wrote a book called the communist daughter and it's mm -hmm. about um norman bethune and he basically took a real life physician who's very well known in canada and he invented a daughter for him because there's this aspect of his life where he's like he stopped writing and so he said he's like it's possible he does have a daughter somewhere but I just created said daughter for this book. Right. I love the idea that you, you come up with something and then you kind of stumble upon this actual evidence of existing. That's yeah, yeah. Once you're really immersed in it, it, it all of those lines start to blur. Yeah. You know what what really happened and and what is in your imagination. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I look at a book that I wrote a long time ago, I forget mm -hmm. which is which. which <laughs> but I keep good notes if I yeah. have to look it up. All right, so being a library company and at a library conference, I have to ask, what is the local library that you use? Uh, well, I have two main ones that I use, a public library and um, a university library. So the Cambridge Public Library in yeah. Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is a gorgeous, uh, relatively new um, building, and um, I, they have great resources. And they also have branch libraries, which are the ones that are kind of closer to where we live and we often bring our kids mm -hmm. um they love going there's the you know the the um sort of musical sing-alongs yeah. and um and and story time and mm -hmm. and that's that's it's great to to be able to do both right mm -hmm. to to bring them there and to find a book that you need um and the and the other one is the harvard library system which is also near us and um they're extremely comprehensive nothing for gonna, kids yeah i was gonna but, say that <laughs> i was gonna say i was imagine they have a pretty extensive collection of works that you can yeah can yeah tackle. and it's um you know it's so nice and fun to kind of learn the flavor of each library and how different it is mm -hmm. and um sort of the different atmosphere different sort of physicality yeah. of the um of the labyrinth of books and mm -hmm. that's something i've always been into so cambridge is one of the places that i've always wanted i hadn't had a chance to visit yet but in my mind it's like does the city itself have like a literary feel? I might be romanticizing this a little bit in my own brain, but like, 
Does it? It feels like it's such a historically literary town. Yeah. Does, it, does it have that feeling? When yeah, you're definitely. In it? And and I'm not from there originally. It was one of the things that I think kept me there. Um, having come from South Florida, which is uh, about as different a place as you can envision than Cambridge, <laughs> um, and and just having that that history, the the literary history, um, places like Concord, which isn't far from Cambridge, are especially um, kind of conspicuous for that because. Uh-huh they've preserved so much of it so there's um speaking of emerson there's emerson's house next to thoreau's cabin across from louisa may alcott's house um, and hawthorne's house uh, all in a, all on one block That's <laughs> and they're all That's preserved and, um uh, I, re- I remember sort of chatting with um with someone at the uh the hawthorne house who was complaining about the people at the emerson who worked at the emerson house you know there's these rivalries and <laughs> Uh, you see them dressed as Hawthorne and Louisa May Alcott getting uh-huh. coffee at the local coffee shops. Oh that, that's kind of a really cool example. And, and Cambridge, uh, you know, it, there's been so many amazing writers from the 17th century on who were at Harvard, um, and they've kind of left their footprints there. And that was one of the reasons I got into it. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I, I hadn't seen that kind of history or felt that kind of history having grown up where I grew up. And um, it really made a mark mm-hmm. to to think, oh wow, I'm living in a in a dormitory. Uh, at least when I got there for college, that was was built in in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. And and who who could have been here and who lived here and then doing research on that. Yeah, I feel like that's Cambridge is one of those few places in America because the country is relatively new. So you you don't find a lot of 400, 500 year old right. buildings. So you ha- it has that kind of like. Like that ghost-like feeling. To yeah, it. I, I think Europeans aren't that impressed because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, they're, they're a city, right? Yeah, they're but, like, uh, like, oh, 500 years. Yeah, right. Talk to me another 500. Uh, um, but it, you really do get that that feeling and that that sense from from just being there, and that that's mm-hmm. that's inspiring. Yeah. Okay, as someone who is so like in the realm of like, classic literature, having written about Dickens and Poe and obviously Dante, I have to ask, I'm also a classic lit, like nerd, do you have, this is an impossible question, sorry in <laughs> advance, do you have like a pantheon of like your, like the people who you think are like the best of the best when it comes to that like, classic literature? Um, no, you know, it's not even so much about who I think is the best, it's kind of the stories that are that are most intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. For some reason, my, my brain kind of tends to go to the 19th century mm-hmm. um, that's not not necessarily because of, of the merits of, of the individuals as writers although I think all of these writers that I've gotten a chance to turn into characters or into stories are, are incredible obviously mm-hmm. um, I think there's something about origin stories that I really mm-hmm. like and, and the 19th century is, is I think kind of the first moments in our literature that start resembling what we have today mm-hmm. right I mean they're kind of very consciously building up what American literature is, what yeah. it means to be an American writer, mm-hmm. or an Amer- even an American writer who is dealing with with um, international stories or themes like Dante. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what sort of got me into the 19th century with the Dante Club, and, and as I've as I've developed, I hope as a writer, um, I've gotten more interested in, in those writers who were inspiring them, like Dickens, mm-hmm. like uh, the Rossettis and Tennyson. And, and just thinking about how they all kind of formed a network. I mean, that's one of the interesting things is the world was yeah. so much smaller right. in, in so many ways, and they all knew each other. Uh-huh. And that, that's, you know, I think that, that word in, in, in my first title, the club, the mm-hmm. Dante Club, I mean, I think that's kind of been a, a guiding 
um, interest for me is is that kind of interconnected world that yeah. they lived in and that they all inspired each other and they didn't all like each other but they they kind of all interacted with each other and that's yeah. kind of cool to think just because we're so pixelized I think today especially yeah. writers I, feel, I just I would love to be a fly on the wall like one of their meals or like yeah. at a bar you know <laughs> just like imagine those conversations um, okay so are there classic literature stories that you don't prefer because I have a few personally like <laughs> Catching the Rye I just that's one of those not like I even when I was a teenager and I was supposed to be like no you're, you're right. an angsty teen who this is you're supposed to relate to this even then I was like he's just a baby and he's complaining it's like that and then like I'm not a huge fan of Shakespeare I can appreciate how great the right. works are but I'm just, it's not for me so are there right. pieces that you're just like not not so much for you um, I don't, you didn't throw anyone under the yeah, bus yeah no but. I mean I, I never got into the kind of fairy queen type of medieval old English mm-hmm. um poems and and writing for some reason I I just never clicked with that yeah. um, kind of the ones that are sort of more that are heavier in in symbology and in religious mm-hmm. symbols um, or narratives um, I never quite cracked those even Milton yeah um, it, it, it kind of pushed me away a little uh-huh. bit I mean that's sort of one of the fun things about Dante is obviously there's a there's religion infused in it or, or religious um, narrative infused in it but he he makes it his own and, and, yeah. and anyone can read it without being obviously without being Catholic without being religious at all in fact right. Dante was um, despised by the Catholic establishment <laughs> right. so he's, he's really car- carving out his own kind of world there uh-huh. using that as a basis and, and that's one of the things that I that I find really cool about yeah Okay, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. I got some other stuff I want to ask you about. Okay, so for the last book in here, Mm -hmm. can you kind of... I have a nerdy question as a reader. (laughs) Do these have... First, I'm going to let you kind of describe people who may not have read it, like the general idea of it, but then I want to know if these people actually existed in the world. Right, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. So the last book in here, which is my most recent book before the Dante Chamber, um, is uh, it's about a group of literary thieves or literary pirates whose jobs were to try to get a hold of manuscripts before they were published, very valuable manuscripts. Uh, And there were big holes in the copyright law back then. Mm -hmm. So um, some of this was made possible by by that kind of primitive form of copyright. Mm -hmm. And these were real people. They they um, would wait at the harbors if they if they got a tip a hot tip that that a valuable commodity was coming um, either from England to America or vice versa mm-hmm. because those things lacked certain protection. So if a Mark Twain book was arriving in England to be published, if they could get a hold of it through bribery or through theft, it could be worth a fortune. Right. Same thing in reverse if a Dickens or a Tennyson uh, manuscript was coming to the United States. Um, it was just about who got a hold of it first. You mm-hmm. didn't have to have an agreement with that writer, as of course we do today, right. in order to publish it. So it was this incredible thing that I stumbled upon while writing one of my other novels, while writing the Dickens novel. Um, and I and I threw some buccaneers, I called them buccaneers, which is not a word that I coined. It was used for literary piracy in the 19th century, sure. but I applied it to this specific kind of job or role of, of what I think of as a literary bounty hunter. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I loved that so much and I got nice responses from readers 
when with the little parts of it that were in the the last stick and so I, I I kind of ran with that for the last book in the year and, and thought well what what could be their ultimate mission mm-hmm. what could I was thinking what if I catch up with the last of the Buccaneers right before the copyright laws mm-hmm. finally come into action which was in 1891 yeah what's their last mission their last hurrah and and I was always fascinated by Robert Louis Stevenson who exiled himself to um, an island in Samoa and he dies there. Uh, he knew he was going to die there. He said he was going to die there. He does. He's buried there on a volcano. So I thought, well, what if between the time he exiles himself and he dies, these last buccaneers mm-hmm. uh, go on a, a quest to, to get a hold of his manuscript before it kind of disappears into an ether, his masterpiece. <laughs> uh, so that's the story as, as it starts in The Last Buccaneer. I, I just... I feel like if I were, and this is another one of the having the discipline as a writer, like I feel like if I was writing a book and came across that nugget, I would have to fight with every fiber of my being to not drop the book I was writing and <laughs> right. just like jive into that story because it's so, like, it literally is like, you can, I couldn't even fathom something like that nowadays. Like it just feels Yeah, and, and you know, it's one of these things that, actually lent itself really well to historical fiction. You know, the, the trick, one of the tricky things with historical fiction is what would work better in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have a rule of thumb is that if you can write something in nonfiction, save it for nonfiction. Yeah. Because uh, if, you're, if you're really discovering it in that way, there's, there's a certain power to, to writing it as nonfiction and to sort of adding it to the historical mm-hmm. record. But this was perfect because it was a real nugget, mm-hmm. which is that these people existed. Um, but there was no record of them, yeah. uh, who they were, what their names were, what they did on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So it's something that can't be written about for more than two or three sentences mm-hmm. without the fiction component. So that, that's kind of one of my ideal scenarios for historical fiction. So being someone who has both you know, spent your life studying this classic literature and teaching classic literature, obviously you're familiar with all these stories, but when you're trying, you know, there's this, the style that you write in with this kind of historical fiction around these literary characters obviously there's an endless supply of them so is this something where you're picking up nuggets for potential stories in the future like when you're rereading when you're you know getting ready to teach a class or are they just things that you kind of always have in your brain I'm trying to imagine you know having read all these works through college and maybe like in graduate school and then just remembering them 10 years later I guess how do you decide which of these characters you want to write about yeah I mean for me as you write you you definitely build up new ideas Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons that my novels have been pretty consistent in in even though each one is different and each one is a challenge Mm -hmm. uh in terms of the universe that they occupy Mm -hmm. they're they're kind of a they've all been so far in in what could be one world right Mm -hmm. Um, so that's an example when I was writing the Dickens book that I came upon the Buccaneers and that I, I, right. I have that and then put it in my file, which is just called my ideas. It's, <laughs> the, the document is called ideas. And, and I'll write up a couple sentences or paragraphs depending on, on how much I've thought of. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might not go back to it for years mm-hmm. uh, or something might become um, nonfiction. I, you know, I had an idea for a novel about uh, one of the first... Uh, 
fire companies, in other words, firefighting companies mm -hmm. in Boston. Um, this was before there were fire departments. Right. Uh, so they were actually kind of like gangs, and they would fight each other yeah. and um, sometimes kill each other. Yeah. Sometimes they'd set the fires. And then they would just like sit and they would just <laughs> right, and, and they would right, and and the fire companies would get paid depending on how how fast they got there. Yeah. So they would be racing in the street and they would start a brawl because uh -huh. they would want to get there. So I had an idea to write a novel about um, what was historically the first honest fire company uh -huh. um, called Company 8 in Boston <clears throat> and this very wealthy eccentric guy started it um, and came up with all these rules and in any case and I thought I was going to write a novel I didn't and so later I turned it into a long nonfiction article mm -hmm. um, and so that's something that could happen too is you, you can have an idea of something that you think might be one format whether it's um, a short story or mm -hmm. an article and then later it becomes a novel or a play yeah. or or going in the other direction so that's that's something that I try to keep very fluid with my ideas is to not sort of pin them down that this yeah. has to be this I know, I know that a lot of people who do long forms and also will write you know novels and things I know that their process can tend to be pretty different mm -hmm. a lot of times but for you given that you're even if they're nonfiction long forms they are still somewhat aligned with some of the characters you might be using. So is your process kind of the same with the difference being, you know, tighter deadline and a few Yeah, less right. I mean, the one, one nice thing about the long form compared to a book is that um, the... Uh, the light at the end of the tunnel comes on immediately. <laughs> like once you start writing, compared to a hundred thousand word novel, which is sort of a typical novel, mm -hmm. um, a very long, long form piece could be ten thousand yeah. words, right? Uh, so, for example, Company Eight, the one I mentioned, uh -huh. which is which is on a digital magazine called The Atavist Magazine, um, was around ten thousand words. Yeah. So, even though that's that's a, a long. Uh, format for an article it, yeah. it's still uh, for me mm -hmm. because I'm used to working for years on something um, it, it feels like uh, kind of a treat yeah. to have that end in sight and, and, and the research process is very similar mm -hmm. uh, in part just because I'm very meticulous with research to begin with and I love research and some writers don't and that's fine yeah. um, you know they really want to be done with the research part of it but um, I could keep researching forever I have to cut myself off <laughs> <laughs> um, so when speaking of the time when you do cut yourself off and um, when you're kind of like reading for enjoyment, do you tend to read historical fiction or do you stray from the genre that you're writing in as a reader? I guess like, what are your reading preferences of books? Yeah, I, I, I often have to restrict myself to reading what I'm researching. Yeah. Because it involves so much reading. Mm -hmm. um, so for the Dante Chamber, because my characters are Christina Rossetti, Alfred Tennyson, Robert Browning, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, I'm sitting there uh, at night reading, you know, before bed, reading their poems uh -huh. and their stories. Um, and if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have the time to immerse myself in them. So unfortunately, a lot of my leisure reading mm -hmm. um, gets co-opted by my work <laughs> reading. Um, but when I do have a, a chance to read for fun, it's, it's pretty varied. I, uh -huh. I really read books rather than authors, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, I often prefer to read something that has nothing to do uh -huh. with what I'm writing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even the format. So, um, you know, something like uh, a nonfiction book about Spartacus. Yeah. Nothing to do with anything I probably will ever write, but... I imagine that's probably healthier <laughs> just because you're not sitting there being like, oh, that's a good way to yeah, think about that. Yeah, problem, and it's kind of sad, to uh -huh. be honest. You know, I, 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 I imagine a professional chef 
goes to a, a rival restaurant and is probably mm-hmm. um, analyzing yeah. what they're eating, right? And and oh, this is so good for this reason, and I want to do something like this, or or I or you know, this is this is lacking this or that, you yeah. know, as opposed to how most of us eat, which is just oh, this is oh, yummy, this is, yeah, you know, right? Or, good, yeah. Um, so and it's sad because that does seep into reading too, where you're saying, wow, how did she do that? Yeah. Like, how is she pulling this off? And this shouldn't work, or um, but it does, you know. Yeah. And I want to do this kind of thing, or you know, I would do this differently. It's 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 not it's not, I think. It, not a benefit of being a writer. Well, as I say, I imagine the difference is for you know a chef can go and they can tinker with a re- with a with a menu item after tasting something else, and they can come up with a new recipe in a week. Whereas for you, it's a couple years in between books. Like, I think it's a little that's understandable. Yeah, you want to read something so close. To um, okay, so at the end of our podcast, we always do nine. We call them the Nerd Nine, just nine like sure. questions. Um, it used to be rapid fire. I might all not of, be good at that. I'm no, not that's the thing. All of our listeners would always send us messages like. These aren't rapid fire. Please stop <laughs> saying that. You guys are lying. So they're lighthearted, though. So the first one is, do you remember the last book you finished reading? Do you know um, we just kind of touched on a little bit? Yeah. Um, the last book I finished reading, let me think for a second. Um, yeah. Let me see what... I, yeah. What, every, wait, what is it called? Everything's... Um, I gave it a blurb, so I want to get the name right <laughs> sure. so I, I don't... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Everything here is beautiful. Okay, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one of the last books I read was uh, called Everything Here is Beautiful, which is a really haunting debut literary novel by Mira T. Lee, L-E-E. Nice. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Um, I told you I wasn't going to be good at this. That's uh, okay. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I, I actually really like to read and write in bed, mm-hmm. um, sitting up in bed. And my wife, as a present, got me uh, a, a kind of pillow with with arms on the oh, sides. Nice. Right? Yeah, I know what you're talking I don't about. Know what those are officially called? For some reason, I think they're called a husband. Is it really? Um, well, because they're almost like the, they're the ones that you get like when a baby can't really sit up for themselves. Yeah, right. It's an adult <laughs> version of them. That's fantastic. Um, so I, I don't I don't often get to do that to mm-hmm. read and write in bed, but that's that's my yeah. Um, do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? Yeah, you know, I think the book that really hooked me for the first time to be serious about reading was Moby Dick, mm-hmm. which is strange a little bit because some of it I just skipped. I mean, the wailing parts I had to skip through, but at the same time I appreciated that it was so challenging mm-hmm. and that I was reading something that was that was above my head in uh-huh. a way. It, it kind of forced me to um, to really pay attention. Yeah. And um, there's... I still can't quite figure out or make sense of why why he, he would put parts of it that are clearly uh, unreadable. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm still interested by the fact that he did that. Well, that, I mean, honestly, hearing you talk before about how much you love research, I can, I can understand why you love Bowie Dick so much. Yeah, and, and maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Um, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Um, Australia. I always wanted to go to Australia since I was a, a little kid. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and still haven't gotten there. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Um, holiday... Uh, you know, I I didn't have uh, 
Christmas growing up because I'm Jewish, mm-hmm. um, but my wife is not. So now we get to have Hanukkah and Christmas, and it's it's fun to finally get the Christmas tree. My father's side of the family is Jewish. Yeah. But our, we are Roman Catholic, so same thing. We did Christmas in our house, and we would go to my grandmother's uh, house for several nice, days of Hanukkah. Right. So I also have the best <laughs> you of both worlds. Both. Yeah, uh, coffee or tea? Tea, definitely. Cats or dogs? Uh, Right now, it's really both. <laughs> I used to volunteer at an animal shelter, so uh-huh. it's a trick, tricky question well, okay. for me. But um, right now, cats, because that's what we have. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite food? Um, oh my gosh, why am I so bad at this? <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess probably right now it would be pizza, because I'm trying not to eat yeah. pizza. <laughs> um, and then the last one, and I feel like you're going to have a good answer for this. If you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? Um, oh my gosh, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, you know, it would have to be one of my characters that say, I've I written about, like, and yeah. I, I think the, uh, I think, it, I think I'd have to go with Dante, who, yeah. by the way, would, would not like me. He didn't like anyone, really, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he wouldn't like me, but I'd still have to, to pick Dante, and good Italian food is your bonus for that. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so the last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading The Dante Chamber? Um, oh, that's a really good and hard question. Let me think for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, one of the most exciting parts of writing the Dante Chamber for me is that it's one of my first female protagonists Mm -hmm. in Christina Rossetti, and I, I hope that readers experience it the way I did writing it which is this really uh, transcendent character um, at a time where women weren't expected to, to be transcendent. Mm-hmm. And, and I tried to capture that from the, not just for my story and, and for my fiction, but, but from the real person there. And I, and I think readers will, will get a kick out of that. That's perfect. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. It was a pleasure. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.